So with all things presidential surrounding us right now, I thought I'd share this story with you that for those of you who are West Wing fans, you will remember. A woman is walking down the street one day and she falls suddenly, bam, right into the center and down a very deep hole. And she looks around and recognizes there is no way, no way at all that she will be able to get out on her own. She yells, help, help, someone help me, please, I've fallen down this hole. And a priest comes by. She says, father, father, would you help me get out of this hole? The priest looks down on the hole, takes out a tablet, writes down a prayer, throws it down, and moves on. Eventually, a doctor comes by. Doc, come on, give me a hand here, help me out. Doctor looks down on the hole, takes out a prescription pad, writes a prescription, throws it down the hole, and walks on. Finally, a friend of the woman in the hole comes by. Give me a hand here, please. And the friend looks around and jumps down in the hole. And the friend who's already in the hole turns and says, that was a stupid thing to do. Now we're both down here. Friend says, I've already been down here before, and I know the way out. Today I want to talk about relationships as guides as we learn to diminish fear's impact and increase the presence of hope in our lives. In times of real fear and uncertainty, like many of us are experiencing right now, whether because of the economy or the state of the world or just the state of where you find yourself. I think one of the most important things to recognize is that very often, if it's real fear, real sorrow, real sadness, that there are no easy ways out and it takes time. Very often I will say to people, if I'm giving some pastoral counseling, is that you cannot make it better fast, but you can make it worse very, very quickly for yourself. This came to mind when I was reading an essay this past week. I have no idea why I picked it up, but I was in a Borders, and I picked up a collection by the novelist Kingsley Amos. He's the father of Martin Amos, who I read a lot in the 80s, the novelist, if you might remember him. But Christopher Hitchens is talking in this opening essay of this collection by Kingsley Amos, in which Kingsley Amos is extolling the absolute virtues and necessities of alcohol. Now, if you know a little bit about my story, that might be interesting that I would pick up that collection, but Kingsley Amos is a good writer. And he approvingly, Christopher Hitchens does in this opening essay, approvingly makes note of alcohol for many reasons, but most especially because Kingsley Amos identified that alcohol has the wonderful effect of making other people far less boring. It can't have that effect. Or else can you make you far less boring? I know it did for me, but not in good ways. But the sadness of this is that kind of character that wants, you know, the quick or the easy way out when it's struggling. It builds that kind of mindset that cannot be and will not recognize the beauty, the wonder in our relationships with other people. This kind of way of living, whether it's alcohol or whatever it is or might be for you, this way of living is a recipe for isolation. And it is a bitter well from which I have drunk in the past in my life. Because where it leads us is that no matter how much support, how much love, how much joy is there in our relationships, we will not have the mindset or the eyesight 
to recognize how much is really there in our relationships. It's a recipe for living artificially, living superficially. And ultimately, it's like trying to put out the fire of dragons with fire itself. And that just extinguishes our own lives. The thing is, though, as we all know, sometimes life really is boring, even if other people are not. This is an opportunity for us either to get more edgy, try to find that easy way out, or actually examine why we are bored. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Pascal, from his beautiful collection called Pensées in the French Thoughts. He says, most of our miseries result from our inability to sit in a quiet room alone. Most of our miseries result from our inability to sit in a quiet room alone. We get edgy. We got to solve this. Life isn't supposed to be boring or quiet at times. It's got to be energy, got to be activity. But what Pascal is saying in this is that there is a great difference between loneliness and solitude. Solitude is the experience of fullness in our being alone. Loneliness is only the experience of absence in our being alone. And if we can learn the difference between solitude and loneliness, then we will also start, and Pascal didn't say this, but I think he was talking about it. We can start to get over ourselves and our sense that we are at the center of the universe. Our sense of our terminal uniqueness. <laughs> and that life is boring and other people are boring because they just don't quite get us. If we can move beyond that, we can move into that deeper relationship with life that calls us into the kinds of sustaining relationships with each other that we know as lifelines. If we grab onto those lifelines, they can truly bring us and give us hope. Now I want to show you one of these lifelines right here. It's from, even if you haven't seen the movie, it's from a scenario that I'm sure almost all of you have seen before. That is from that incredible movie that did so well at the Golden Globes last week, Slumdog Millionaire. You are on your own, Jamal. And then the phone gets picked up and the lifeline is secure. One to another, that phone a friend. If we want to move beyond fear, grasping and knowing the lifelines that really hold are essential. And even and especially as we see when we are playing games. Some of you might know the name Temple Grandin. You familiar at all with her? She is an autistic teacher. A teacher who has autism. She teaches from the experience of her autism. She has this incredible gift to know how animals see the world. See, she does not learn as animals do not learn through words, through the written word, through language as often you and I might conceive of it. She learns in images. She learns by sight. And so she actually has an animal's view of the world and is able to translate. She is a guide between the human and the animal world. And so she has been a consultant to corporations and businesses and schools. Any place that is interested in making the connections between animals and human, human beings, more humane. Now, one of the great things she has identified, and particularly this has impacted how people have structured zoos. There is an innate connection between animal stress and fear, and the opportunity or the deficiency to play. 
Animals that have the opportunity to play on a regular basis tend not to be nearly as fearful, nearly as aggressive. This is true for us as well, for the human animal. As our ability for playfulness grows, fear diminishes. And the more we fear, the less sometimes we will play. I love the moment in Kevin Smith's very irreverent but still very faithful movie, Dogma, in which God is personified by the singer and actress Alanis Morissette. Now, the end of the world has just been averted. Two renegade angels have been stopped from crossing the threshold of a church that, because of this comic book fantasy kind of world that Kevin Smith has constructed, the world will not come to an end. And what's the next thing that Alanis Morissette, as God does? She smells the flowers. She stands on her head, falling over backwards, much as a kid would. This connection between divinity and playfulness is so essential for us to remember. It's because play reminds us to enjoy creation just as an end in itself, not because it will get us something or bring us somewhere. There's a need that we all have for this unrestrained, even goofy joy, especially all of us adults, and I don't think we play nearly enough. I have a friend on Facebook, and by the way, for those of you who are part of our Wellsprings Facebook community, you can find a really good discussion later today, leading into tomorrow, about the questions that you see in your order of service about this message. So that's just another sort of plug for our Facebook page. One of my friends this past week, she lives in New York, and she posted on the day in which the U.S. Airways plane went down into the Hudson. And she said, Kim is in serious need of some levity. Kim is in serious need of some levity. Aren't we all? Right now, aren't we all? There is so much of life that feels so serious, so weighty right now, that gravity, that gravitas. And, of course, gravity is necessary, literally, but also spiritually. It grounds us. It brings us back to earth, down to earth. It reminds us that we are of this earth and are to walk upon it lightly and wonderfully. But there's another word that comes from gravity, grave, as in you're dead. Grave, not on the ground, but under it. Gravity in that sense of weightiness so much that pulls us down, pulls us down and makes us feel flattened out. There are some awfully grave things going on in our world right now. The fighting, which blessedly, at least for now, seems to be ceased between the Israelis and the Palestinians, of course, the state of our economy, perhaps your own very lives. And there are some historically serious situations that are potentially wonderful, have amazing gravity historically, the inauguration of Barack Obama. And I say potentially wonderful, I mean, he had me at hello, to be honest. When I first heard him speak summer 2004, he had me right at hello. But, you know... Being a candidate is different than being president. And so I have amazing hopes. But the wonderfulness of this incredibly, not grave, but this incredible situation of gravity, of the importance of this moment, only time will tell the value of it. But in the midst of all this graveness and this gravity, fun time is essential. But fun time might be the first time to go for you when things are so serious. 
If you are so worried and so fearful, you think that the last thing you possibly can do is spend time just sort of frittering it away. When time is so weighty, we want to concentrate and bear down even more. But I want to encourage you not to give in to that temptation. I want to encourage you to engage in situations or engage with people that remind you of the power of laughter. See, laughter is letting go. Very often, letting go is talked about as an act of, oh, it's tough. Got to let go of that old pain. Got to let go to forgive. Got to let go of that sadness. Laughter is letting go in the best way. Laughter is literally an expression of air out of your body in a way that you cannot control. And so when we laugh, we have to breathe deep. When we laugh, we are drawn into and toward life and move past keeping the breath right here at the top of our throat because we are afraid. Laughter is letting go in the best way. And so one of the things that you see on that sign-up sheet today, if you haven't filled it already, is our family fun night on the 30th. Now, by family fun night, I don't have kids. I'm going to be there. Family fun night, we just mean fun for all ages. It is goofy. You will find yourself engaged in activities that, especially if you're of a certain age, you will not have done in a very long time, and good for us, and good for you. I want you on that night to look like a goof, and feel like a goof, and act like a goof. Because in surprise and in silliness, we remember what it's like to laugh. We remember what it's like to let go. We remember what it's like to move past that state of self-consciousness, of thinking just about our own situation, and are drawn out naturally towards others. Because when we laugh, we got to breathe deep. When we laugh, we remember that there is a power beyond, beyond just thinking what we can shape and what we can form. There is laughter that brings us the charge of the charged full soul. Laughter is a source of energy, a particular kind of power. But ultimately, power and strength are very neutral things. There are a lot of spiritual self-help programs in all varieties out there right now that promise you unlimited power, personal power, that will promise you the way to get the things that you want. Power is just neutral. It can be used for good or for bad. On this day, the day before we remember Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., I want to draw attention to what remains for me his most important writing. It is called The Strength to Love. Not strength so you can grow. Not strength to have strength. But the strength to love. It is his recipe for any meaningful kind of personal or social transformation. Because what Dr. King believed at his base, at his base is that we are all connected, interdependent. And so the strength that we have, it is only good to the extent that it draws us out towards each other in love and brings us into a more intimate relationship with each other and with this world. What King taught and preached is that life gives us all, especially in fearful opportunities and fearful circumstances, the chance to grow a bigger heart. In this fearful time, this is what we're all invited to do. Grow a bigger heart. A heart that is more capacious, is more roomy, is more able to love even in the midst of fear in a courageous way. 
And so actually, what I'd like to do right now, just sort of off the top of my head, is um, for the last couple of years, actually, I've gone into Philadelphia. I've gone into Philadelphia to do an MLK Day of Service. And I know some of you individually are doing MLK Days of Service tomorrow. But I recognize we don't have anything here at Wellsprings. So why don't we set that challenge for us one year from today? That together, we'll engage in the service project or service opportunity, whatever it is. We don't know what it is yet. But here in our community, so just a couple rules. One, it does have to be here in Chester County in the place where most of us live. And the other thing I can think of is that, well, it should be for all ages as well, too. So we've got one year. Clock starts now. Let's see if we can gather together meaningfully together next Martin Luther King Jr. Day, if you have the opportunity to be of service and to practice that strength to love. King's vision was and is that we are all in this together. And he's often thought of, you know, as a social teacher, but he also understood very deeply the nature of our hearts. He taught that if we want to diminish our individual fear or experience a deeper individual hope, there's a secret to this, which is to focus on someone else's fear or to help another person find hope. That's the easiest way I can recommend that you can diminish your fear or find hope. Focus on someone else. William Sloan Coffin, the great Protestant preacher of last century, said this. He said, there is no smaller package in the world than someone who is all wrapped up in themselves. <laughs> right? There is no smaller package in the world than someone who is all wrapped up in themselves. Seek his faith, not in terms of some content like I believe this or I believe that about the nature of God, but faith as a way of living our lives. Faith is the opposite of life as a small package. Faith is that intimacy with life that overcomes estrangement and isolation and fear and guides us back into a deeper relationship with things and with each other. I referred to a little bit earlier before that, you know, part of my story is a 12-step story. And one of the ways, one of the things I really like about the 12-step traditions, they talk about, you know, God as you understand God. God is higher power, moving beyond that personal understanding. Well, the way that I've actually started to translate this that makes ultimate sense for me is that actually that HP, that higher power, I experience in my life as higher presence. A higher experience of sheer presence, of not being alone, of not being isolated. The truth is, when it comes to my own spiritual development, when it comes to images of God, the powerful, I'm a non-believer. That, for me, is the best recipe for atheism. God the king, God the Lord, God the one who controls. To me, that is the fantasy of our power just saying, oop, I'd like some more power, so I'm going to project that up into God, up into the heavenly realm. But that doesn't exhaust what the divine is. That does not exhaust the meaning of what presence is. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put the beginning of his faith in this way. He said it was the experience of his heart strangely moved. The heart strangely moved by that experience of presence. See, that presence becomes, as Dr. King preached, the strength to love. But sometimes it's just enough to guide us through the troubled waters. A friend of mine who was studying some years ago to be an Episcopal priest 
came from Roman Catholic tradition. And he was really struggling. He's an incredibly, incredibly bright guy. But he was really struggling when he was in seminary with what's the right next thing for me to do? What's the right next step that I have to do so I can prove my worth, prove my merit? And he was in what's called spiritual direction, which is sort of once a month, not quite like counseling. It's sort of just all the spiritual stuff is on the table. You're trying to find the help of a guide, someone who can bring you into deeper relationship with your religious growth. And his question was for his spiritual director that day, what does God want from me? What am I to do? And his spiritual director just smiled and said, what if God doesn't want anything from you? What if God just wants to hold you? Now, my friend is one of five boys in an Irish Catholic family south of Boston. (laughs) This idea of God not wanting something from you, just wanting to hold you, that made him feel really vulnerable. That made him feel afraid. And maybe there was nothing he could do. There was only a way that he could be. This sense, however you understand the power of presence in your life, is that experience of, I got your back. It's like when someone says to you, as I hope they said to you, that I cannot promise you that everything is going to be okay, but I can promise you that I will not abandon you. I give to you presence. I share with you the power of just who I am. Like Chrissy Hind and the Pretender singing, I'll stand by you. You know that great song? We should do that, by the way. I know we can't do it today, but we should do that eventually. <laughs> it's a good song. Power of that presence. I saw that this past week. Uh, U.S. Airways 1549. That miraculous story. The miracle on the Hudson. Normally, I don't like when media puts names to things immediately, but that one works. <laughs> In that image at first, now I was at home writing my message and I was taking a little break. So I was just happened to be channel surfing about 3.30 in the afternoon. So I saw it come on really early on. And I saw that image, that image of the tail sitting out of the water. And I thought this is as ominous as a shark's dorsal fin coming towards you. This story is not going to end well. But it turned out that it did. It's an amazing story of heroism. It's an amazing story of rescue. I think we all need some rescue stories right now to make us feel a little better. Remember these stories. There was one image, a small image, that really stayed with me. It was when the survivors had been rescued and they were back on dry land and they were being led away from the small tugboats or ferry boats that brought them back, bless you, to the land. And they were walking up a gangway towards some warmth and some safety. And the first responders, I don't know if you saw this, all had some parts of their hands or an elbow or a back or a shoulder on each of those survivors. Now, of course, that's just good training. Someone with the likelihood of suffering hypothermia has a good chance of passing out. And if they just survived an ordeal like that, You don't want them to fall and hit their head in the gangway. But beyond the good training, there was something so incredibly tender about that moment of these people who had just survived this ordeal being led, gently guided, 
with a hand on their back, hand on their shoulder, or on their elbow. Just sort of saying what words can't, which is that you've fallen. You have fallen from the sky. But now that you're back on earth, I've got you. I've got you. And I am here. You have my presence. Henry Nowen is a, was a spiritual teacher. He's the guy who sort of invented what's called pastoral counseling or hospital-based chaplaincy. Very, very learned man. Taught at Yale, taught at University of Chicago, taught at Harvard. Very, very learned priest. In the last year of his life, he could no longer teach. He could no longer preach. In fact, he even, as he approached the end of his life, found it very difficult to engage in the prayer that had sustained him throughout his entire life. And so he needed to find a different lifeline. He needed to find a different guide into presence. And do you know where he found it? He found it at the circus. He found it with a group of trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. He kept going to the circus regularly and regularly and regularly, eventually befriending the Flying Rodleys and the Prime Flyer, himself named Rodley. He took his next step of faith with these acrobats. See, because what he learned is that to be a trapeze artist, there are two parts. There are the flyers and there are the catchers. Now, the flyers are the ones, the daring young men or women on the flying, up there on the flying trapeze. Ooh, ah, they're the ones who make our hearts thumpy, thump, thump. But they're not the important ones. (laughs) The flyers are only able to take the leap of faith because there are the catchers. Those who can take them from the exhilaration of flying through the air unencumbered and then finally held. Finally held on to. And they know that they will be delivered safely. That's where Henry Nowen found the last best sense of presence in his life with those flyers who ultimately can trust that they will be caught. In fearful times, we need balance. We need reminders of happiness and joy and silliness and family fun nights. We need to remember that all of us can be the tiniest little package in the world that is all wrapped up in our own individual little misery. And we can forget the way out that is in and through and with the lives of others. But this balance will only take us so far. What we also need to remember as well is trust. We remember that really all of us are flyers at one point or another, and all of us also have to be catchers at one point or another. We know we all have to learn to let go. We all have to learn at a certain level that life itself is letting go for dear life. And trust. Build the trust that there is presence enough that we will be caught. That life is release and catch and release and catch and release and catch with no end. 
and the trust in that, that at the end, and also while we are here, that we can be guided home. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit that flies and soars of lightness, of angelic grace, that reminds us and calls us back into that not unbearable lightness of being, but that necessary lightness of our being. Let us remember this spirit so we do not become leaden and sink down. But let us also remember this lightness because what exists at the other end of the lifeline is real. That our lives, each to the other, and also from that spirit, what name we give it, we know not at times, but that holds us all in embrace. That ultimately we all fly, perhaps even with fear of flying, but let us also trust in our capacity to catch and to hold and to love. Amen.